Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Human Desires Divinely Filled, Jesus, the Bread of Life. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 5th, 2012. In his 2009 film, The Girlfriend Experience, Director Steven Soderbergh suggests that the need to love and be loved, to know and to be known, is so deeply embedded in us that we'll do almost anything to get it. We'll even pay for it, as we see in the movie, whether to a psychotherapist, to a personal trainer like Chris, or, when it comes to the main protagonist, to a $2,000 an hour escort like Chris's living girlfriend, Chelsea. Chelsea sells sex, of course, but her wealthy clients want something more than sex. They want, in the words of the movie title, a girlfriend experience. They want to take a peaceful drive on a lazy afternoon, eat a leisurely lunch at a fancy restaurant, talk about all the things you talk about in a so-called real relationship like how work went that day, the kids, the job. Chelsea pretends to offer genuine companionship, and her clients willingly fool themselves that they receive it. But things unravel when Chelsea and her clients drop their guard and transgress business boundaries to reveal themselves to each other as real human beings, rather than as mere partners in a transaction. Since human love can't be bought or sold, Chelsea and her clients seek something they can't get, and they forfeit their closest approximations in what they already have. We shouldn't be too harsh on Chelsea's clients who pay for sex to get love. In the Old Testament reading this week, after Israel anointed David as king, he crushed his enemies and conquered Jerusalem. He renovated the city and renamed it after himself. He rebuilt elaborate public memorials and constructed a palace for himself. He forged political treaties and economic agreements with Hiram, king of Tyre. David took more and more concubines for himself. He took more and more wives and fathered more and more children. And when that wasn't enough, he took one more woman, Bathsheba, and murdered her husband, Uriah. But more and more was never enough to satisfy David's appetites and impulses. Money, sex, war, fame, and power, these are only a few of the ways that we try to fulfill the deepest desires of human nature. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal compared our insatiable desires to an abyss that must be filled. He writes, What else does this craving, this helplessness, proclaim? But there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss 
can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Similarly, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis suggested that joy points beyond itself. He described it as an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. And he says he doubts whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis compared this deep longing to a desire for our own far-off country. Like Pascal, Lewis believed that our natural longings could only be filled with a supernatural object. By God himself, who alone can fulfill them with his indwelling presence. <clears throat> One of the most famous and insightful sentences in Christian history comes from the first page of St. Augustine's Confessions. As the book unfolds, Augustine describes his extensive experiences with unfulfilled desire. And so, as if to give his conclusion beforehand, in the very first paragraph of the book he writes, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. An insatiable craving, a psychic abyss, unsatisfied desire and desires, and the deep longing for a faraway land. All these point to and find fulfillment in God alone. Despite our many failed experiments with all sorts of substitutes, in John's Gospel this week, Jesus describes himself with seven I am sayings. These are intentional literary allusions to God himself, who identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14 as I am. And so Jesus compares himself to light in darkness, a gate to a safe pasture, a good shepherd who sacrifices himself for his sheep, the resurrection and the life who conquers death, and the true vine who fulfills Israel's destiny. And just as he compared himself to living water that quenches our thirst in John 4, Jesus also identifies himself as the one who satisfies our deepest hungers. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The ancient Hebrews ate miraculous manna from heaven in the desert, says Jesus, but they nevertheless died. Jesus, by contrast, says that I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. If this sounds scandalous to our modern ears, we can at least console ourselves that it also did to the original audience 2,000 years ago. The Jews grumbled about comparing himself to God. Wasn't he the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How can he say such things? And even his own disciples dismissed Jesus' claim as a hard saying. Who can accept this, they protested. And from that time on, says the gospel, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Look carefully, and all around you, you see misguided attempts to fulfill legitimate human longings. They encourage me to pray with Augustine just a few pages later in his Confessions. Turn us, O God of hosts, show us thy countenance, and we shall be whole. For wherever the soul of man turns itself, unless toward thee, it is riveted upon sorrows, even though it is riveted upon things beautiful. For books this week, I review a title called Ten Popes Who Shook the World. The author is Eamon Duffy. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2011. 151 pages. The papacy is a lightning rod for passions, both pro and con. Historical evidence for its first hundred years is sketchy. Theological claims of power are dubious. Its wealth is unimaginable, and some of its morality unquestionably repulsive. Nevertheless, the papacy and the church of a billion Catholics it oversees is the world's oldest perpetual dynasty. Eamon Duffy, professor of the history of Christianity at Cambridge University, published a 500-page book with the apt title Saints and Sinners, A History of the Popes, back in 2006. This marvelous little volume, just 150 pages, originated as a series of 10 talks that Duffy gave in 2007 on the BBC radio. Duffy's scholarship is meticulous and his approach fair-minded. His brisk narrative begins with a short introduction about the papacy. It allots about 8 to 10 pages per pope and includes 40 illustrations. All the popes were people of their own times. Popes oversee a vast and complex bureaucracy. Duffy compares it to the EU headquarters, the United Nations, and the International Court of Human Rights all rolled into one. There's Leo the Great, who invented the papacy as we know it. Innocent III was the most powerful pope of the Middle Ages, and therefore perhaps the most powerful man in the world. He oversaw the Crusades, the slaughter of the Cathars in southern France, and the ransacking of Constantinople. But he also gave his blessing to the newly organized Dominicans and the Franciscans. Even Duffy's treatment of the moral cowardice of Pius XII under Hitler requires nuance. But at the end of the day, Duffy concludes that when the helpless were being slaughtered, the most powerful voice in Christendom faltered. The current Pope Benedict is the 262nd Vicar of Christ to fill the chair of Peter, 
So Duffy makes no claim that the popes he considers are the best popes, or even the most influential ones. Rather, each one encapsulates one important aspect of the world's most ancient and durable religious institution. Yes, some of them were saints, and some were sinners. But all of them enjoy a fair shake at the hands of one of the faith's best historians. Eamon Duffy, Ten Popes Who Shook the World. For film this week, I reviewed a documentary from the African country of Sierra Leone. The title is called Fambul Tak, from 2011. From 1991 to 2002, a brutal civil war ravaged the West African country of Sierra Leone. The war killed 50,000 people and displaced 2 million more out of a population of 6 million. The war devastated the country's infrastructure, destroyed the economy, and traumatized ordinary citizens with rape, torture, mutilation, and rebel terror. As in many other countries, various NGOs, truth and reconciliation commissions, and special international courts tried to redress the aftermath of national trauma, but with limited results. A man named John Calker had a better idea. He appealed to the Sierra Leonean tradition of fambul talk, translated family talk, in which villagers gather around huge bonfires to discuss community concerns. This documentary film shows how their grassroots organization, unaffiliated with the government, facilitated these healing events in over 50 villages. It's a film about the very public confession of guilt by the perpetrators and the act of forgiveness by victims. Both victims and perpetrators acknowledge the truth of a village proverb, there's no bad bush to send away a bad child. This is a deeply powerful and disturbing film. It contains extensive and graphic first-person descriptions of the worst sort of crimes against humanity and war crimes. I watched Fambul Talk on Netflix streaming. Fambul Talk from Sierra Leone, a powerful film about forgiveness. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by William Wordsworth. Wordsworth lived from 1770 to 1850. The title of this poem is called The Tables Turned. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? Books, tis a dull and endless trifle. Come, hear the woodland linnet. How sweet the music on my life, there's more of wisdom in it. One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good. 
than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore which nature brings, our meddling intellect, misshapes the beauteous form of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art, close up those barren leaves, come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 5th, 2012. I'm Daniel.